Welcome to the Quantum Growth Podcast, empowering financial advisors to build practices for the 21st century by providing insights and interviews on leadership, strategy, and practice management. Now here is your host, Barron's Hall of Fame advisor, Jonathan Cutton. Okay, well, hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode here of Quantum Growth for Financial Advisors. I am your host, John Cutton. Happy to be here today and really excited uh, to introduce our guest today, um, who I am actually meeting for the first time, but we have many mutual friends uh, in common, uh, including someone who has been coached uh, by Brian Bosley, uh, my business partner out in Texas, Dave Dick. So uh, I'd like to formally introduce Brian Bosley from Torch Consulting. Uh, Brian, would you mind saying hello to the audience? Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for having me on, John, and everyone. I look forward to the next uh, 45 minutes or so. Yep, I'm looking forward to it as well. So kind of inside the podcast here, a little insider information. Um, we, we actually record these podcasts with video on, although we usually only release the audio. Uh, and it's myself, Brian, and Joe from my team. And you've got three of the handsomest bald guys you will ever meet in your life. So if you could, if you want a visual to our listeners, uh, we've got uh, some you know, bald is beautiful gentlemen here uh, on the show today. So you know, with that being said, Brian, you know, if you wouldn't mind, um, I know you've been around here in the industry for quite some time. Uh, maybe you can just give our audience a little bit of your background and kind of how you got into the business and what it is that you do today. Oh, I'd love to. Thank you. Um, yes, I graduated from Central Michigan University in 1995 and right away went to Lansing, Michigan. And IDS Financial Services had a, uh, a job uh, opening and I saw it in the paper, applied back when paper was still where you looked for your jobs, applied, got hired by a, a wonderful man named Mark Chucci. He hired me in. And I started that summer, stayed for with American IDS. Then it went into American Express Financial Advisors uh, during my process. And I was under the tutelage of John Hans at that time, who was my uh, group vice president or regional vice president. I forget the title at that time. Then we, uh, he asked me to, to buy the pro, devise a program that would help American Express Financial Advisors no longer have to cold call again. And that was the, I believe the fall of 94 or maybe it was 95, 95. And we stumbled across a wonderful program we called Market Pulse. And it, it really had a lot of success. And then a year later, I decided that it was time for me to go out on my own and started Torch Consulting in November 20th, 1996. I came back from five days at deer camp with my friends and made the decision while I was in the woods that I was going to go on my own and, and do consulting. So I started Torch Consulting at that point, primarily to work with financial advisors on their marketing and sales and client service. Over the years, it's morphed more into now leadership development for heads of teams or advisors who are heads of teams, cultural enhancement and development to help the culture to perform something I call a P3, positive, productive, and profitable. And then also a lot of professional and personal individual development is something I do within the teams of financial advisors right now. So it's been a 24, it'll be 24 years, November 20th. It's been a fantastic journey. Wow. Didn't start off fantastic, but it, it ended up fantastic. And you decided in the woods, huh? I decided in the woods. <laughs> yes, I did. And you know so, what? I, I we just found out as we got to know each other here that you started at at IDS, which is where I started as well. Um, so small world, and it's amazing how many leaders started at IDS or American Express Financial Advisors. There's something in the DNA and the culture, uh, I believe, in the company that creates so many fantastic leaders. And you, you said you've been coaching advisors since, did you say 94 or 95? 94. I'm sorry, 96, John. November 20th of 1996. Okay, 96. So Yes, it'll be 25 years. Oh, yeah, I was going to say almost or yeah, over 25 wow. years it will be, which that's a quarter of a century, my friend. That's hard to imagine. Uh, that's the first I've really thought of. Yeah, it'll be my silver anniversary coming up. Well, hopefully you get a nice watch or something from somebody. <laughs> you know, I, I got to share, Brian, I, you know, as our listeners know, um, I am very much about leadership and I, I share uh, with anyone. Um, in fact, I just had a little, uh, little excerpt for making uh, the Barons list and was asked what I attribute the success to. 
uh, and it was two things. It was having a, a wonderful team um, and focusing my time and energy on leadership. So I am at the core, a leadership guy. Um, and I love what you had said is it seems like a big part of your business is uh, coaching teams, right? Of, of, you know, a few advisors, let's say with a, you know, staff and juniors and associate advisors uh, into becoming a, more of an ensemble practice or more of what I would refer, refer to as like a vision-based type leadership type structure. So maybe you can talk a little bit about maybe some of the key pillars. You, you talked about the P3. Uh, was it P3? Yes, P3, uh, yes. Maybe you can talk a little bit about what, what that means. Okay. Well, you know, one of the things I see in cultures when I walk into an office or, or a setting, and I, whether it's you know virtual or they could be scattered around the country or they're in one site, the first thing I try to do is pick up on almost an instinctive sense of what does the culture feel like here? And it, cultures are easy to read, in my opinion. And I think clients pick up on cultures. I know for sure that that staff and team members pick up on cultures. And so, you know, what I did over the years, I tried to experiment. Well, what are the elements of a good culture? Like when you have that top culture, what does it look like? So right away, I thought, well, positive, because I think, think people have to love coming to work. Of course, they'd rather be, you know, fly fishing or traveling with their family or maybe home playing with their children or swimming in the pool or at the, at the water. But they, they like being they're engaged. You know, they feel like, OK, this is where I belong. People get along. They respect each other. You know, one of the things I'm a big fan of is, you know, understanding the four basic needs of every human is that we want to be loved, understood, respected and appreciated. And when you have those four elements, you primarily will have a positive culture. But then the other thing is we have to be productive. We have to produce something. I mean, humans are designed to create. And I, you know, I, I, I get very discouraged when I see a person that just, they're, they're doing a good job, but they're stuck on that hamster wheel. You know, they're still good employees. They're still good staff. They're still good team members. They're still good advisors, but they just, they've lost that almost a mojo and they're not creating anything anymore. They don't feel a sense of, of production. And so I think people have to produce and create something on a consistent basis. So you have to be productive. And that can mean GDC, it can mean assets, AUM, it could be net flows, it could be just producing new ideas even. Then, of course, it has to be profitable. You know, the, that, that profit center has to feed the ability to grow and be able to, to have a more positive culture and produce even more. So it's kind of a cyclical process, John. And so I, those three things are the three elements that I've seen. If you can instill those and the teams can master those three elements, it's pretty good chance they're going to have a really, really, really effective good culture. Love it. No, really well said. And I love the the uh, P3. Um, and I love that you said you can feel the culture. Um, and I don't know if the audience can can get that, but I get it. I've been in cultures that are amazingly good. And I've been in cultures that are not, you know, quite as good. And I think a lot of it, um, from my experience, has been being able to connect, right, your team to where it is you're trying to go and kind of tying that back into kind of a greater cause, so to speak. So, you know, Brian, a lot of our listeners, um, and we get a lot of questions, you know, emailed in and things like that, um, seem to be at a crossroads. In fact, you know, we've done some, some past podcasts um, on going from practitioner right? More mm -hmm. towards CEO, right? Or right. lifestyle practice to more of a ensemble practice. So as you think about it, um, it sounds like that's where you do a lot of your coaching, right? Advisors, it's just like a different skill set to go mm -hmm. from being an advisor who kind of hunts on his or her own, builds a business and serves clients really well, to being a place where you develop others, right? And build an organ, a true organization. What are some of the keys? I mean, you've coached so many folks over mm -hmm. a quarter of a century. You know, what, what are some of the keys of how an advisor should be thinking about that? Well, you know, I think that I, one of the best books, I'm sure many of the readers have, or the viewers or listeners have heard of Michael Gerber's The E-Myth. I mean, that's a, that's a, I mean, that's the Bible of, of those types of, of that type of thought process of, you know, thinking like an entrepreneur and not simply just as a manager or as a, a technician. But one of the things, John, that I've noticed, um, and this is a fairly new learning for me over the past three or four years that I've been helping my clients with is, you know, I think we're all oftentimes we're so focused on outcome based 
um, changes. We want to change our legging measures. We want to change what we, you know, our, the outcome of something, more production, being a better CEO. But that's the outer layer of the onion. When you go into the inner layer, the next highest level, we have to look at process-based change, you know, changing our processes. But even that's not deep enough. The most effective thing I can tell people who are going to that next level and want to think more like a CEO of their organization and not just a person who's just doing the work every day is we have to change their identity. You know, he or she has had an identity, of, identity as a financial advisor for years, decades for most people. It's going in and changing the identity of that you are no longer the CEO, the advisor, or you may be, but you're also now more importantly, the CEO. And they have to do that by the way they think, the way they feel, the way they act. And they have to act every day through habits, small atomic habits, as James Clear discusses in his book, Atomic Habits. You have to um, base all of your habits on defining yourself as a world-class CEO. And when I get a person to feel, get to that point, they start to change now. It's very similar to, you know, I can sit on the couch and eat ice cream and watch Netflix all day. And I'm, my identity is I'm a person who sits on the couch every night and watches Netflix and eats um, uh, ice cream. But when I one day go to the gym instead, I'm a little bit further to changing my identity. Then the next day I go. Then after a while, I'm no longer that person. I'm the person who now goes to the gym. Now I'm an athlete. And when they change that, that identity, it just, it's self-fulfilling at that point. They, they continue to act that way and it's hard to get them to go back the other way. So that's what we do is we work on changing them or helping them to change the basis of their identity of the role they play in their practice. Pearls of wisdom. Um, you know, I've heard a saying, think, act, do, right? Mm -hmm. Kind of how you think changes how you act, which ultimately impacts what you do and who you become. Uh, and I love your books, right? E-Myth, Atomic Habits. Like if you haven't read those books yet, right? And you're oh, a yeah. advisor or any entrepreneur, um, you've got to go out and, and ultimately do that. So how do you do that? And, and Brian, we're completely aligned, right? And I, I, you know, I, I think we think very similarly, which is really cool. I'm enjoying our conversation a lot. Um, you know, when you think about... Um, you know, being a financial advisor, I've always looked at it where every three or four years in my career, I've had to sort of reinvent myself. And I kind of figured out how do I get good at something? And then I got good at it. And I said, well, now I've got to develop someone else because there's a bigger, better purpose uh, for me. Why do you think so many advisors get stuck? And they just, you know, they, they started like you and I in the 90s as a financial advisor. And here we are, it's, you know, 2021. And they're still doing the same stuff, right? Running a million dollar business, working with a couple hundred clients. Where is it that you think people get stuck and how do you help people get unstuck? Well, yeah, I think, John, a lot of it obviously goes back to the simplicity of our comfort zones. You know, our comfort zone is the strongest magnet in creation. I mean, it's stronger than the gravitation. It pulls you back and pulls you back like rubber band. We have to snip that rubber band for people. But quite honestly, and most people are going to maybe be shocked that I say this, the number one reason I've seen in the 25 years I've been doing this or almost 25 years, fear of success by far. And I, so there's, you know, I, there's two pillars of fear, fear of failure and fear of success. Fear of failure is really either fear of rejection, fear of being embarrassed or fear of losing something that you have. That's fear of failure. We all have that. Nobody wants to be embarrassed, rejected or lose something that they have and care for. But fear of rejection or fear of uh, failure is not debilitating for most people because if you want to, if you fear failure, all you have to do is run away from failure. And therefore you're, you don't have it anymore. I'm afraid of bats. I don't like bats. If you get me in a room with bats, I'm going to run out of the room. I, sure. I just, I have no tolerance for bats, but when you have fear of success, where do you run? Cause every, everything you do consciously and subconsciously is getting you to be more successful and you fear it. So it's like driving with your emergency brakes on. There's a fantastic book out there called The Big Leap by Gay Hendricks. And I actually just finished the book Friday and I started it again yesterday morning. And he talks about, The Big Leap talks about the four zones we have. We have the zone of incompetence that we break through. Then we get to the zone of competence. And if we're fortunate enough to keep pushing, we'll get to the zone of excellence. But a very, very microscopic percentage of people get to the fourth zone, which is the zone of genius. And that's where you are, you are running on all cylinders in your life, you know, professionally and personally, love, money, success, opportunities. And I always equated that to fear of success. So the, to answer your question, uh, what do you do is you find out there are 10 primary reasons why people fear success. 
And we, you, you identify which one is that advisor or that individual's fear of success or which they might have two or three and you dissect them and work on those specific three things. And then you start to take the pressure off the, the, off your brake because it is, again, it's like driving with your brakes on. It's just, you might get there. And some of the most successful advisors I've coached have feared success once we dissected it. And they realized as far as I've gone, I could have gone further or I could have gone faster to where I was. And when they broke away from that and understood their fear of success and started dealing with it and where it came from, then they can they start taking off and they break that rubber band of the, the gravitational pull of their comfort zone. So that that is by far, and, I, and this is a, the what I would suggest, and I don't, I don't have any empirical studies on this. I've told people for years, and the, now that it's almost 25 years of coaching, I would venture to say that 75% of the advisors I've coached in the past 25 years, that is their number one debilitating problem is they fear, they fear success. They don't know it. So they can never, they can never work on it. Fascinating. And I get it. I mean, I totally get it. I think that's really cool and a very different way to think about helping advisors. I don't think I've had anyone put it quite that way uh, before, which is really cool. And the book that you had mentioned was The Big Leap, because I think I'm gonna pick that one up. Yeah, it's called The Big Leap by Gay Hendricks. I'll, have, I'll, I'll buy you one and have it sent to your office this week. I was hoping, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I better write that down, because I wanna uh, make sure. No, you, and, do, you, do you do Audible or do you hard copy books? Uh, I'm actually an audible guy, but you don't, you, you, no need. Thank you. But no. I'd like to, um, it's, it's a gift to, for me to you from Michigan to Long Island. I love it. I appreciate it. Thank you. Um, so you talked about, um, this is what I do, by the way, Brian, I, once I get, get fixated on something, I just like to learn. So I'm going to, I'm going dig, to dig in a little, and I know you probably don't have all 10 committed to memory, but what are some of those, um, uh, if you can remember any of them, what are what are some of those kind of 10 areas that keep people um, from not wanting to fail, right? That fear of being successful. And I'm just, just as an aside, I totally agree. And, you know, uh, just as a simple aside, my kids are going to hate this, but I've got four boys, um, three of which are really competitive lacrosse players. Yeah. And I mean, really competitive, right? Like playing big time division uh, one lacrosse, two of them. One's a little guy who's a, quite a good player. And I always say to them, man, have you just played the way you played in the backyard when no one's watching and you're fighting with each other because your big brother pushed you down or whatever? If you played like that in games, you'd be like the best player like in the history. Oh, for sure, <laughs> for sure. Game. But there's something about when the world's watching you and your friends are watching you, right? that you, yep. you won't let it all out, so to speak, right? And right. you kind of get that stuff maybe as you get a little bit older. And I'm always trying to impart that in my kids too. So any thoughts on what those kind of 10, yeah, some of sure. those 10 are? Well, I can tell you uh, some of the bigger ones I see is not, the, the one is called, we call icon toppling. We live in a culture where, you know, if you remember the, the magazine Success, it was out for 18 90 something and then it went out of business about 10 years ago it's back now but it went out of business for a while and i think about how does a magazine like success fail for a few years when a magazine like the world press or world New weekly news and the national Enquirer and people and us weekly and how do those thrive it's because we are so we love to watch rocky balboa climb the ladder and fight apollo creed and beat him but then after that you kind of want to you people like to be icon they wait at the top of the icons we want to topple presidents and CEOs and celebrities. We want to see them fail. We want to see Tom Cruise had a baby with a three-headed alien. We love that stuff. And it's, it's subconscious, but over the course, the course of our life, we get culturized into thinking that, man, if I become successful, you know, that might happen to me. Because we love underdog stories. You know, we, we thrive under that fire. You know, and we, when you mow the grass, what do you cut? You, call the you always cut the tallest flowers first. I mean, they're the first ones to get cut. So that's one that I see as icon topping. But the one I see the most, John, is... Well, now it's called the imposter syndrome, that if you are successful, you will feel be, you will feel like a fraud because, you know, and that can come through a myriad of things, self-esteem issues, never having been accustomed to success in the, in the past. But what I what I get a lot from advisors is, are things like, Brian, my entire career, even though I've been successful, I have been standing in this line of success, like I'm in the grocery store line and it says success line. And over here next to me is the failure line. And I'm waiting every day, looking over my shoulders, waiting for somebody to come tap me on the shoulder and say, oh, we made a mistake, man. You've been in the wrong line all the time. You deserve over here in the failure line. 
So we have that sense that we don't deserve it, that, you know, we're, we, we're, we're a fraud if we become successful. You know, there's a lot of other ones. And I, I, I've got a list here because I carry this stuff around. One is a big one I see is being under a microscope. You know, mediocrity is a great camouflage. And if people don't want to be in the, don't want to be um, exposed uh, or don't want to be the center of attention or don't want people picking them apart or seeing the things that they're doing that aren't perfect, they'll stay back and kind of sit in the, in the, in the background and just, you know, camouflage themselves. But when you're successful, the world sees you. They're seeing all the great things you're doing. But they're also seeing a lot of the bad things. You're not bad things, but the wrong things you're doing. Uh, so those are just a few of them that I and there's a, there's there's 10 total here. Um it, another one that I, you know, Stephen Covey in his book Seven Habits talks about this a lot is the limited pie theory. You know, we're to some degree we're culturized into thinking if I'm successful, somebody else must be a failure. That zero sum game mentality, where when you know what I teach my clients is the more success you have, the more success everybody around you has. The happier you are, the more balanced you are in life, the more money you're making. Everybody benefits from that around you. Everybody connected to you benefits from that. And the opposite is it true too? The less happy, the less balanced, the less successful we are, other people suffer from that so those are a few of them that i see quite a bit that uh, those three or four the big one is the fraud uh, they just don't feel like they deserve it it's not who i am yeah, don't believe they're worthy right no in that book the big leap john is dissects that one to the next level it really does a good job i can totally relate and and you know what um as someone who's had a fair amount of success i've gone through my own kind of Am I worthy? And, you know, sure. I jokingly sometimes said, I'd rather be number two than number one, right? And at, right. at my firm or whatever it may be, because you kind of fly under that radar a little bit, right? So sure you do. I completely get it. And, you know, I'll tell you what, we all, um, you know, we all kind of go through change, right? In our, in our lives and our careers, just in our development as humans. I think one of the things you said earlier, like maybe the first thing that, that, that you said, uh, or one of the first things that you said is that progress, right? It's about making progress. People like to make progress. And that's something I always try to focus on is how do I keep making progress growing as a human? It's why I'm always reading and podcasting and listening to podcasts and trying to talk to people a lot smarter than I am. Um, you know, I, I feel like I'm at a point in my life right now, and hopefully some of our listeners um, can, you know, can, uh, you know, find that same commonality, you know, commonality, so to speak, where I'm really clear and getting clearer every single, you know, year in what's important, what my core values are, you know, the things that are important in my life. Have you found in your experience when you coach people that um, part of that process, I have to assume, is around understanding your core values and what's important to you kind of as a human? it's one of the first things that we have to identify with our clients is what's, you know, yeah, what are, and we, we call them top three to five core values. Some people have more, some people have less, and we have them really take a, do some real deep, uh, giving themselves a good audit, some good reflection, introspection, and say, what, what matters to you? If everything else was swept, was swept away from you. What are the core things that are most important to you that you could hold on to that, that boulder in the middle of that river that you could hold on to that are the most important things. And yeah, once they once they do that, they you know just gives them that kind of a strong, confident point of reference from which to work and build upon. So I couldn't agree more on that, John. And it, and it does change. You know, those things change; they evolve or they enhance. But you know, as long as the person is consistently asking themselves, "Are these my core values still? Are these still the most important things in my world that I can build and base all of my decisions and actions and thoughts and feelings around?" And you know, it's so it's not just write them down and then walk away like we do business plans and and you know in and things that we put on the wall in our office mission statement. This is something that has to be jugular and be held on to from each with each individual person. So how do you help with that? So you come in, I'm just trying to think. So I'm a, a an advisor, right? I've, I've got a nice practice. I want to become more of a CEO and a leader to others, right? And that's really what I'm hearing, Brian, is a lot of the work that you seem to do is around developing others' leadership ability, right? And others' yes. ability to influence you know, other people in their organization, or for that matter, their family, their friends, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So what, what does that look like? So we get clear on our values. You referenced a little bit before, I heard a little bit about leading and lagging indicators. Mm -hmm. um, you talk about atomic habits. So I'm assuming it starts with 
getting clearer and some kind of you know small uh, steps. Maybe you can just kind of talk to the audience a little bit about kind of any thoughts there. Sure. Well, the process that we've created here that we use with every client within the first one or two sessions is something I call the BGAP. It's just that I love acronyms, John. I'm an acronym guy. Um, so BGAP simply stands as BGAP, the Bamboo Goal Achievement Process. We're actually going to change the name of the company to Bamboo. We, we're looking for the Bamboo Consulting, Bamboo Code. We're not sure the second name. So we're going through a transformation right now because I, I'll just kind of back up for a minute and share with you why, because that's part of the story, is when you plant a Chinese bamboo seed, you plant it, you nourish it, sunlight, water, and nothing happens for the first three years or so. Very little progress, if any, through the earth. But after, at the fourth or fifth year, it explodes to the earth and it grows 90 feet in the first, oh, I think it's six weeks, six or seven weeks. It's, it's one of the fastest growing plants in the world. And it's incredibly difficult. Typhoons, hurricanes, you can't break a bamboo tree. Because what it did during that time frame is it established this complex, incredibly powerful root system in the ground where you went, we didn't think there was any progress being made. But what it was doing was establishing the foundation. And, and that foundation was key to its long-term success and that, that high intense growth. And so uh, we, put, we put people through the bamboo goal achievement process. So the first thing I do is I say, what do you want to accomplish? You know, we start broad and we go down real specifically to what, it, what does that look like? So, you know, I use uh, something that I, we got from a, uh, Dan Sullivan years ago. The R, I think it's called the R, R factor question. In three years from now, we're sitting here talking on the phone or we're having a cigar and a bourbon. What has to have happened in those three years for you to say, I'm ecstatic of where I am in my life right now. So identify their goals. Then the second thing we do is we say, okay, what are your traps? Because we can set goals all day, all day long, but we know that everybody gets off track. So I say, if you're going for a hike in the woods and you know there are bear traps set in those woods, you better know where they are. So traps are anything that could distract or derail that individual from hitting their goals. It could be uh, internal traps, uh, insecurity, procrastination, time management issues, you know, anything, you know, I have arrogance on mine is one of my traps. Complacency is one of mine. I know fear of success is on my, is one of mine. Like, there are things that we just always have to be on the lookout for, but then we have external traps too. The, the, the economy, teammates, family issues, um, all these things that are happening outside of our ears. So we have to identify traps to say, okay, now that you've identified them, the chances of you stepping in a trap is much less likely. And if you do, you'll notice it because you've, 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 um, intellectualized it during this process and then the third step in the process is lead measurable activities what are those things that you have to do on a consistent basis daily or weekly to make sure you are avoiding those traps and you're getting to your goals so that's the third the fourth team the fourth step is accountability how do you hold yourself accountable to the goals you have to make sure you reach those those goals in the time that you set so it's establishing goals identifying traps developing a lead measurable tracking system for them, and then how to, helping to put together a system that works for them that they cannot escape their, 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 their at lead measurable activities because there's an accountability system there that just is rock solid. And there are several of those that we, we use, we, or we create one for them, but we have a few that we recommend normally. But the, and we find when people follow that process, they, they hit their goals. And then when you're working on that, then all the other things come into play. Like that's when we identify, oh, you have fear of success or you or you're you're struggling with not being engaged in your job. But that gives the framework that we can we can use that BGAT process where all the other good things and bad things come into play uh, that we can identify while we're going through the BGAT process and then then following up on it and using it on a consistent basis as a tool. Oh, love it. Love it. Love the BGAP process. Love the reference of bamboo as well. And you're not kidding, man. I, as an aside, I had bamboo at my old house and it was yeah. me against the bamboo. <laughs> <What that takes. laughs> oh yeah. I, I, can well we, imagine. I, I mean, it grows through concrete. It's crazy uh, what bamboo can actually do uh, for sure. And you know, Brian, listening to you speak, um, you could tell you've been doing this for 25 years. Um, I mean, it's, it's pretty cool to listen to you talk about it. Um, again, sort of, I actually pride myself on being a pretty good leader, right? And helping people sure. change. And I can kind of just hear how simple it is, right? We talk sometimes about simplic simplicity on the far side of complexity, right? Mm -hmm. oh, and yeah. it's really hard sometimes when something seems complex like changing, to understand it as thoroughly as you do right now. I mean, it sounds like really what you do is you kind of get in there a little bit, right? And you help people rewire, I call it, right? Their thought process and really have processes 
to ultimately help them just think differently and, and just isn't the right word. Um, do you have any, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit here, right? So That's fine. Um, do you have any kind of 25 years of doing it? Do you have any success stories where you just think about, um, I always love to hear success stories, kind of like, I'll call it the, we're never finished, but like the, the before and after, right? You know, so-and-so was working a million hours, miserable and got their life in order. Cause I, I, I call it Quan, right? Do you remember oh, yeah. Jerry Maguire's story, right? Yeah. Fighting for Quan and it's usually combination of relationships, right? Your, your work and finances, right? And then usually your health for most people, those are three of the, the big ones. And usually one's out of whack. It's really hard to keep all three of those plates just kind of humming along. Um, maybe you could just talk a little bit about some of the results you've been able to get. Sure. Advisors. Well, yeah, one of the things, I'm going to start with one that's not even an advisor story because I, this is my favorite story because he was the very first client I ever worked with after I left American, or after I left yeah, American Express Financial. He was an architect out of Detroit uh, or out of Ann Arbor, Michigan. And I happened to just call him on the yellow pages or the day after I left American Express on a Tuesday. And I looked up, you know, looked as architects, one of the first things in there. And I looked it up and I said, I'm going to call this guy. He had three people working for him, worked out of his house. And he was struggling to make to bring in 80,000 a year. So I called him. I said, can we meet at the Red Hawk? You're, I primarily said that you're going to be my first haircut if this works. I've never done this before. And I said, but I, I'll buy you lunch. And I'd like to just, so I propose that I will work with him and coach him and consult him. And if he, whatever he brings in, in addition to what he was bringing in last year, month by month, I get 49% of the growth. So if he's bringing in 10 grand last May of, May of 1995, May of 96, and he brought in 14, I get 49%. Of that. That's how we worked it out. Well, I ended up working Smart with- Smart deal, with, by the way. That's a good yeah. deal. <laughs> well, yeah. well, I have to tell you that during that, that, that first year, I did eat a Subway sandwich out of the trash because I was really going broke. Okay, maybe <laughs> but, not such a smart deal. <laughs> that was the, the first few months. Well, the thing is, he started taking off, John, and then I, I've coached Scott for, oh my goodness, 12 years. Uh, but after a while, we went off of that program because I got too busy uh, flying around the country and I got back with American Express as an outside consultant with marketing and sales and leadership development. So I said, Scott, you just pay me a base fee. Well, when he was, when he retired 15 years after we started working, he was making over, he was making a seven figure income with only one person on staff and he still worked out of his house. You know, and it wasn't just because of me, but that was, he, he had no concept of the CEO leadership, marketing sales uh, process of, of, of that. And so that was a big impetus to, to uh, it's just one of the best successors. And I love the guy. He came to my wedding when I got married. He gave me his, he and his wife let me use their BMW Z3 for a month to drive around the coast of Michigan. Uh, just be fantastic people. He put the pergo flooring and laminate flooring in my mother's house for me. We, so we became close. And now we touch base once a year. We just talk once a year and I don't even charge him. It's just, we're just as friends, but uh, yeah, we have a lot of stories that I, you know, I don't, I don't have a lot of them in front of me, but um, you know, I can share with you a, 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 an advisor that I'm working with now, a young executive who is an advisor going into leadership and was quite frankly, was, was going to quit. His practice was, was, this was two, two and a half years. His practice was going down. He didn't have any engagement in, in, in him anymore. He said, I really don't want to even go into leadership or become a partner in the firm. And so the firm put me on him and said, can you work with this guy? He was only 28 at the time. So he's 30 now, 31. So it's probably two or three years ago. And um, I walked him through the BGAP process, identified his fear of success, what it was. And it was the fraudulent one. It was that one and not being, and also he, he thought the other one was, other fear of success is you don't want to ever be more successful than your parents. Sometimes if you come from a very domineering father or mother and we identified those and we broke through those and today to right, right now, he can either go full financial planning because he's making I mean, four or five times what he was making then, but they also want to become a partner in the firm now and go into leadership. So now he's wrestling with what decision do I make? And that to me, I said, you have the right decision to wrestle with because three years ago or two and a half years ago, you were wrestling whether you should even be in this industry anymore as an advisor or uh, as a leader. And uh, I said, look at where you've come from. So a lot of those stories, I tend to work very well with a lot of that 20 to 20s, 30s advisors who have hit, hit their, they've hit a, a, a kind of a peak a little bit and they're a little bit burned out, a little bit disengaged, a little bit disenfranchised and they 
they have to make a choice. What do I want to do? Do I want to go to the next level? Do I want to go into do some leadership? And I help them to make that choice and then, of course, play or work under their peak capacity at that point. So we have a lot of little stories like that that I just, you know, that I love. I've got cards up here from a, a client here that was sent me. Uh, that was December of 2020. I stuck it up there about a young person who I helped, you know, change his life. And, you know, honestly, here's my rule. And I know I'm taking some time up here, John, but I tell everybody your role as a leader is one thing. is to increase the sense of self-worth of the people around you. Because self, self-worth is a, it's not strong in our world. And I, and I don't mean you're always saying great things and, oh, you've done well, you know, all that warm fuzzy. Sometimes it means taking them behind the proverbial woodshed and challenging them. So they let them know you believe in them. You'll challenge them. You'll celebrate with them. You'll support them. Uh, that, but, you know, make sure that they know that. And when we do that, people feel that they are in the presence of greatness. And so when I tell a story about success stories, I'm like, I'm not saying I did it. And when I say a person who's a good leader, when people are around you, they feel they're in the presence of greatness. It's not that they think you are great. It's they, you bring out greatness in them. And when they walk away from that conversation or that connection with you, they feel greatness in themselves. And, and, I, and their self-worth is increased. And they feel like they go conquer the world. So, I mean, those success stories are me applying tools to people who felt that they had success in them. And I just helped them dig it out. No, love it. Love it. And congrats on helping so many folks. I love that you don't take the credit for it. Um, but you're, you're certainly uh, contributing. Um, well, thank you to those that you coach as success. No, you're welcome. It's great. It's great work. I mean, when you can help other people um, get what they want for themselves, right. And you've got that skill set, you could just multiply and multiply and help, you know, thousands and thousands of people indirectly, right. Through dozens oh, that you might you. help on your own, which is pretty, uh, Pretty powerful when you really start hey, to think about it. I don't know how I got into this. I don't know how I've lucked out getting into this career. There's not a day. I mean, there have been times in my career where I felt a little disengaged, you know, over the course of 25 years, that's going to happen. But there's not a day I don't get up not wanting to do what I, what I, what I do. I get up early at five o'clock because I'm excited to get out of bed and, and start my day. I, I really do love it. I've been very, very blessed. Yep, absolutely. And I, I love what you said about, um, you know, kind of building people up. You you um, had referenced John Maxwell, I think, before, right? Did you reference John Maxwell? I thought you did. I might have. I have his books here. I know. Um, no, maybe. And and I always get confused. Maybe maybe I'm not even thinking about Maxwell, but um, someone I listen to couldn't tell you who it is, um, but talks about um, two ways to lead, right? And it's either directing or connecting. I think it's Maxwell, but I could be wrong. <laughs> that sounds like something he would he would come up with. Yeah, and I think so many, uh, you know, particular financial advisors, which is our audience, became successful because they just worked their butts off and they were really good directors, right? And they could lead yeah. a person or two, and certainly themselves, to drive KPIs and drive activity, right? And you kind of get to a certain level when you're in your thirties, like you said, where you look up and you go, all right, I work my butt off. I put in 60 hour weeks and Hey, I'm doing a million a year in production. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but you didn't get to learn those connecting skills, right. And right. actually develop a business above and beyond yourself. And it sounds like that's very much around what your business actually does, which is really, really cool. Um, you had mentioned something preliminarily um, about what you call chance acceptance, right? Change, I, you know, I, that might have been, it's change acceptance. Okay, that makes more sense. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. I was like, what the heck could that be? <laughs> well, I saw it on the email today and I thought, I, I thought it was just a typo one of our. So change acceptance yeah. is more around some of the conversation that, that I think uh, we had before about actually being not afraid to fail. Is that accurate? Change acceptance itself, yeah, yeah. There are, I, there are. What I work with my clients as something called the, the monkey trap, and how we get caught in the trap and hold on to things that we don't need. And there's a story behind that, but uh, of you know how monkeys are oftentimes trapped in the wild, and it's because of their own greed, naivety that they actually stay trapped when they could pull their hand out of the trap any day and get away, but they don't. And we do that every day, but there are three ways we change, and there are three stages we go through in change, and helping to identify a person to identify which way is their primary mode of change and why? And if it's not the third one, which is the most effective, which is change by anticipation, why are they stuck in either shock or, or um, 
or evolutionary change. So helping a person to identify which is their mode and then what stage are they stuck in, in the three, that helps people like to, you know, put a, a name to where they, why they're not, why they're afraid of change, you know, yeah. so it helps a lot. Can you elaborate on the three for me? I don't know. Oh, if I of course. Totally get it. Yeah. 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 So the three modes or three ways we change or three modes. The first one is shock, you know, and that's just, you know, a health issue, a financial issue, a marital issue where we're just something causes us to, to we have to change it's do or die. So it's forced. We're forced to change. The second one is evolutionary change. And that is we change by evolution. We sit around and wait to see what other people do before we we make the change. And I always look at it like we're sitting on the side of a train track and the train is going by. We know that that train represents our, our, our destiny, our future. And we know we have to jump on the train, but we're, we kind of sit there and go, okay, I'll jump, I'll jump in a second. Okay. I'll, I'll jump. Okay. I will, you know, you'll, you'll do that. And you'll do that so long. You'll finally jump on the train and now you're on the train, which is great. You didn't change by force or shock, but you, 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 you know, you did it on your own accord, but you wake up and you realize you're in the caboose of the train and all the benefits are in the front of the train. So you waited too long, but anticipatory change. The third level is where you anticipate the change that needs to come, where you will break something that's not broken. You'll look at things that worked for you yesterday that don't work for you today, and you'll actually just you'll uh, disregard those and start something new. You'll lead the change process. So not only are you in the on the train, you're you're steering the train, and you're always on the lookout for the next opportunity or the next need to change. So those are the three modes, but the three stages that we go through are always going to be first we deny change or the need to change. Then if we push through with denial, we get to opposition. That's when our, you know, we, we might deny change, but we'll still do it. I might deny that I don't need to stop drinking bourbon or I don't need to, I need to work out or I might need, but, but I'll do it, let's say, but then all of a sudden you get out of that comfort zone and you start to oppose it because you're so uncomfortable with the new you that you migrate back into it. And, but if you're strong enough, you get to the third stage of change, which is, which is acceptance where something is accepted as self-evident. So it's so the modes are are um, are uh, denial, opposition, acceptance, and that's the hardest thing, John, is to get somebody and migrate them, lead them through that because we want to get stuck on denial. If we have the courage to get to the next one, which is opposition, that's the hardest one of all because that's when our, our 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 comfort zone starts to fight back and pull us back in. But if you can lead a person through that process, it's so rewarding for them. And it's also rewarding for me at the same time, but it's just good to see them break through and snap off that comfort zone band that pulls them back. And now it's like my new life is my acceptance. I it's that identity changing. You know, now they see themselves as a CEO or a highly successful advisor or staff person or whatever they might be. No, love it, love it. Um, and you know, it sounds like you want you want to be in that anticipatory, right? That's yes, what you yes. want to be. And you know, I told uh, my 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 I. Like a lot of us, right? Um, I get into these great routines where I work out. Was doing a great, great job. COVID kind of shut down the gyms and got out of the routine. And my wife and I, a few weeks ago, um, got back to what we're calling wogging, right? Because I'm not ready to run. She actually is. But I'm, I'm a good wogger too, John. Part walk, part run. And I, I actually, Brian, you guys will laugh or, you know, when you think about this. I keep telling myself like jokingly that I'm a runner and I am not a runner by the way, but I like my wife and I uh, went out for lunch over the weekend and I, I actually saw a running store and I said, let's go into the running store. My wife looked at me like I was nuts. And I said, no, I'm a runner now. So I am in that opposition phase and I am fighting it off um, so that I actually accept that I am a runner. I don't know. Stay tuned. In about 90 days, I'll let you know. I'll, I'll uh, follow up with you on that. Yes. <laughs> I would. Uh, I don't know if I would bet with, or, you know, <laughs> I, I don't know what the, what the odds there are for sure. All right. Um, but uh, it's, I, I, I love uh, the way that you put that. Absolutely. Thank you. Now, Brian, the last thing I wanted to hit you with, believe it or not, we're almost out of time here. Um, loving our conversation, by the way. Same but, here. Quarter of a century, my friend, 25 years of doing this, been a lot of changes, right? What, what, what have you seen as the major kind of changes? And maybe more importantly, where do you see the industry going, right? So if you're an advisor today, you've seen a lot of change. As you look ahead over the next, you know, three, five, 10 years, what, what do you think is most important for advisors to be thinking about? Well, the thing is, I've seen the change, the three changes I've seen most actually, John, are the team environment approach. 
that I, that was not a concept when I started back in the nineties are very few teams. The other one is a much deeper focus on the client experience. I think that's fantastic. I mean, I've seen so many more advisors and teams and, and companies just really having a, a very uh, maniacal focus on client experience before it was a lot of, a lot of transactionary things, um, you know, cold calling, you could just get on the phone and get more clients back in the day, just call more. But the third one that I see most is that we have to create our own scars now. You know, advisors coming to this and, and talking primarily new advisors coming in. I, I know, I'm sure you did. When we got, when I got in this company, we were, we got our scars created. Our skin got thick because we were getting so many rejections every day on the phone. Now advisors have to create their own scars. They have to find their own way to earn those scars. And it's not going to be through the, the, the prospecting types of, of programs we did. Those are three major things that I see it's changed. And, and I think the number one thing that is going to be a focus in the future is more and more of that client experience. Because, you know, we have so many opportunities to spend our money now through Amazon and eBay and all these other sources that the competition is not just other advisors and financial planning practices. It's anybody who wants my client's money. And so, and it's so easy to spend money today. Venmo, you know, Amazon Prime accounts, you push a button and you spent whatever you want to spend. You can buy a car online. I bought my car online last summer. You know, just, I didn't have to, didn't want to go shopping. So I bought it online. It's easy. So I think that making sure those clients feel like what I call super glue experience when they walk in there and when they're working with an advisor, they better be super glued to that advisor for the rest of their career. Otherwise, you know, otherwise the glue stick uh, service doesn't work anymore. So those are some of the things I see changing and some of the changes. And I also think because of the team approach, the, uh, the concept of advisors now having to put on that leadership role and to develop the culture is going to be more and more and more important so they can deliver that super glue client experience. Yeah, Brian, couldn't agree more. You and I are very aligned, my friend. For, for our first time meeting, I mean, uh -huh. honestly, I think... Uh, I think as the great Wayne Gretzky said, right, you got to be uh, skating to where, not where the puck is, but where it's actually going. Amen. Um, we are infatuated in our practice with client experience. We are infatuated with leadership. We are an ensemble practice. And um, I think we are in complete congruence on everything that you said. You know, and what I want to kind of wrap things up on here to the listeners is, um, Think about where you are, right, in, in, in your career and what you want to be, right? What, what do you want your business to look like three years, five years, 10 years down the road? And, you know, it's no different than having a personal trainer, right? If you want to get in shape or a nutritionist or uh, you name it. Um, if you don't have a mentor or coach in your life who's giving you feedback consistently and helping to teach you and learn from and share their experiences, the likelihood of you getting where you want to go is dramatically less, right? So we have a coach for our whole organization. I've had a host of coaches. Brian, you and I are going to chat some if, if you're open to it, because I think there's some, some, uh, some I can learn from you as well. And, you know, what's really cool that I've learned over the years is every coach has just a different philosophy. And I've heard yeah. a handful of things that you said, Brian, today, that are put differently, that actually is just a different way to look at it and go, man, that's yep. pretty darn smart, right? And we all learn differently. So, you know, with that being said, my cutting really long-winded way to the audience of saying, um, whether it be Brian or someone else, um, if you really want to grow and you really want to change, um, find the right coach, you know? And with that being said, Brian, I think it's a really good segue for a, any final departing thoughts that you might have for us um, would be the first piece. And then the second piece is where do people find you, right? Is okay. there a, a website, email address? And we'll make sure uh, it's all in, uh, in the show notes as well. Okay. I'll leave with one final thought, then I'll give you my information is the rule we live by here at Torch and the rule my family lives by is very simple. Every day, give your best. Every day, show love and respect to others. And every day, live consciously. Enjoy the journey. And to me, those are the three pillars of a successful life professionally and personally. But yeah, I'm, if anybody would love to get a hold of me, I would be more than happy to discuss my services with you. I answer three questions. Number one is, would you benefit from some type of performance consulting in your practice? Number two, do I specialize in the exact type that you need? If not, I will refer you to someone else or 
help you find someone else? And then the third question is, could we work together? Is there a good synergistic, respectful relationship potential there? And so if anybody is interested, I'm pretty uh, informal. I'm a big texter. Anybody can call me or text me at 616-366-2789 or email me, brian at torchsuccess.com. Or our new, our new website is being developed. So the old one, I still have hair on it, but it is torchsuccess.com. My hair doesn't look really good. It kind of looked like Frasier from Seinfeld or from, uh, from, <laughs> from the, uh, what's that? Uh, from Frasier Cheers. Was, uh... <laughs> yeah, Frasier Crane from Cheers. Yes. yes. Uh, but um, that is the old site, but it'll, it'll give you a little context. But probably the one thing I tell everybody is if you find me on LinkedIn, feel free to go on my LinkedIn account. And that's the one I'm most active on. It has my bio. It has client testimonials. It has uh, articles that I write and or post every day. So that's a good way to just to understand, is this the kind of guy that I even want to, you know, do I want to talk to this guy? And uh, I don't hard sell. If anybody wants to call me or talk to me or text me or email me, I'm just going to share with you whether or not I can help you or not. Then I will share with you the specifics. And I would always ask people to make a decision from there. And I don't, I will not push you to make the wrong choice or the right choice. It'll be your choice. Love it, Brian. Well, hey, uh, amazingly insightful. Truly appreciate uh, the time and energy. And it was great uh, to get to meet you today. Usually yeah. I've met my guests before. So this was uh, fun. And I'm glad we got an opportunity to spend some time. I'm looking forward to get to know you uh, even better. Uh, it was a pleasure. It really was. I thank all of you for having me on. I really do. You got it. And so uh, with that being said, uh, thanks to everyone for tuning in to another uh, episode of Quantum Growth for Financial Advisors. As always, if you know anyone who you think could be a great guest for our show or you yourself uh, think you could be a great guest for your show, shoot us an email. Uh, until next time, I hope everybody enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to today's episode. You can find the episode show notes and subscribe for updates by visiting cuttonconsultinggroup.com forward slash podcast. Make sure to subscribe and download the episodes on your favorite podcast app, and we'll see you next week.